Okay, welcome to my business contact by my grandpa. This is our first original podcast. I'm sitting with uh, recently retired Justice of the Peace, Michael Reagan. Judge Reagan recently retired from McDowell Mountain Justice Court, where he has been the Justice of the Peace for 15 years. Uh, Judge, why don't you just tell us about your background? Well, my background uh, started in the private sector for uh, almost all of my life. I graduated from University of Cincinnati. I went on into uh, sales and then I went into marketing in the computer industry. With the ups and downs of the computer industry, I ultimately exited in 1991 and came here to Arizona from Illinois to start a manufacturing business to basically work for myself. The uh, business was very, very successful. Along the way, uh, I secured uh, various licenses, uh, insurance, real estate, securities, contracting licenses, and sold the business in 2001 and entered um, what I thought was going to be early retirement until I was asked by the Board of Supervisors if I would come out of retirement and help uh, get the, the uh, old Scottsdale Justice Court back up on its feet. It needed someone with strong management experience who was willing to then also learn the uh, balance of the uh, uh, judicial uh, education necessary to, to run a, a court. So here I am. All right. And you recently uh, gave a presentation to our new judges on wisdom that you've acquired in your 15 years. Uh, can you go ahead and, and tell us what that was? Well, I looked at the wisdom, uh, what I would call basically judicial survival uh, concepts from three categories. First, the personal life of a judicial officer. Second would be surviving on the bench. And third would be policies that you should adopt uh, every day in your life as a judicial officer. Now, there could probably be hundreds of recommendations, but I focused on what I thought would be the top ones in each category. And the key was that these had to be easy to grasp these points. They had to be very easy to implement and that they could be implemented almost instantly. And that these should be initial major guides for a, a justice of the peace, for example, uh, to use day in and day out, both on and off the bench. First category, our uh, recommendations concerning your personal life as a judicial officer. If you look at the canons of judicial conduct, for example, as a, as a guidepost, you'll quickly realize that they're not very interesting to read. They're, they're structured to be rather legal in nature. And as I tried to plow through them, I actually, I think, first time fell asleep. The key to the canons of judicial conduct is to think of them as like the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were designed to create order 
within a society of people, rules of, of conduct in which how people operated, for example, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not cover the neighbor's wife and things like that. Well, the canons of the judicial conduct are the same way. Now, the easiest way to understand them is to start with the first paragraph and read it and then ask yourself the following question. What does this paragraph instruct me to do or not to do? And then just write down a very brief bullet statement that summarizes that whole voluminous uh, paragraph. And go through the canons, paragraph by paragraph, stop and ask yourself, what's important? What's the message in this paragraph? And then write it down. Use bullet phrases that are seven words or less. Uh, print the thing up. Keep it with you. And one of the things that's very helpful that I found that was on Sunday nights, just before I would uh, retire for the evening, I'd have it on my desk and I'd review it. And I would go over the list of the do's and the don'ts. And it's one of the reasons why I was able to go 15 and a half years as a justice of the peace without ever having a judicial complaint filed against me that was deemed valid. So in history's uh, reflection back, I, 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 I was always worried about not understanding the canons of judicial conduct because I could remember at least 10 justices of the peace in Maricopa County since I've been on the bench that were required to resign or give up their position because of violations of the code of conduct. And I certainly didn't want to be one of them. The next thing in my personal life was a commitment to stay out of politics. Now, you might say that's difficult because I'm an elected official. I need to be involved in politics to get reelected. What I mean about politics is you don't endorse other people for office. You don't help them with their campaigns. You don't go up nights and weekends and put their signs up. You uh, do not uh, solicit uh, campaign contributions from other politicians. Uh, you don't. You have to be careful donating uh, to other elected officials because there's a public record of all of this. Sure, you can go to your district meeting and you can uh, participate in a candidate forum, but that's about it. You do not want to be deemed as a, a political person, even though you might view yourself as an elected official. That's just the formality of how you get your office. But once that happens and the election is over with, you just need to stay out of the politics. Next is viewing litigants that come to your court as not being constituents. Many people, especially if they have a legislator background, view uh, people from their precinct, their JP precinct or their district, as being potential voters for them. You do not want to be making decisions from a legal standpoint based upon if one party or the other lives in your precinct and therefore could be a potential voter if they got a favorable ruling. They are not constituents. Next, do not talk to non-judges about anything that is legal. When people learn that you're a justice of the peace, 
they will ask you questions and you cannot get involved in discussing anything that happened in your court ever to someone who's not uh, another judge you will find out that sooner or later you will get what's called the dreaded Sunday morning phone call and that is from an acquaintance or a friend or a friend of a friend who says uh, Judge uh, Reagan um, can I have a moment of your time sorry to interrupt you um, I have a friend that uh, got a DUI ticket last night and uh, he has some questions and I told him I knew a judge and that I would uh, call the judge and ask the questions on behalf of my friend uh, more than half the times by the way there there is no friend it's really them that got the DUI but the point is you can't discuss anything legal with these people the fastest phrase to come out of your mouth should be there are times in a person's life where it's absolutely necessary to contact an attorney to get proper legal counsel and I cannot help at all thank you very much and terminate the conversation next in your personal life you know a lot of people it's a small world we live in and you have to disclose any perception of any conflict of interest so if I have a car mechanic that, that worked on my vehicles 10 years ago and he shows up as a defendant in a misdemeanor criminal matter and I've not seen him since 10 years the first thing I do is I disclose to all the parties that I know this person the circumstances upon which I know them and that I do not believe that it would uh, cause me from uh, not being able to be fair and impartial and I asked the parties if they want to discuss privately between themselves if I should continue uh, handling their case as the judge or if they believe that uh, I should step aside which I am most uh, willing to do and move the case on to somebody else but always always disclose any possible conflict of interest I learned pretty quick don't get personal with attorneys I had a bad experience years ago when I was out at the front counter and a, an attorney was walking through the lobby and he saw me and he walked up to the window to talk to me about something totally not related to the court system another attorney saw him chatting with me and it turned out that uh, these two attorneys were going to be squaring off against each other in a case in my court the following week and it was viewed that I was you know being personal with that one attorney well you know visually yeah I guess I was down at a personal level you can't get personal with the attorneys they want you to like them they don't want to incur your wrath they don't want to ever upset you or have you put them on their bad person list so they're going to be as nice to you as possible but don't take that as an invitation to get personal with them uh, especially outside the courtroom key for me was watching my conduct in public my wife one day said to me Mike you're off today why don't we go over to the casino we'll play the slots for a while and we'll have lunch and I said to her honey there's no way I'm walking into a casino 
before 5 p.m. on a weekday. I cannot afford to have anybody see me sitting in a slot machine with a, with a, a drink in my hand. Because the first thing that some people are going to think of is, Oh, there's our judge. He's gambling his, uh, his payoffs, his bribes. And look, he's drinking. He's going to be driving later. My gosh, what a shining example we have here. You've got to watch your conduct in public. What you say, how you act, uh, even uh, jokes. Even if they're not off color, just just a joke, especially a you know political jokes and jokes about people and groups of people, you can't do it. Understand that also anything that you say will be repeated. You're a, like an authority figure, and people look up to you when you're on the bench, and they also continue to look up to you when you're off the bench. So if you say to someone that you uh, you believe that a certain law really shouldn't be enforced and if you had your option you wouldn't apply it in cases people might repeat that and that can come back to haunt you or you can say personal things you can make a comment about another judge you can make a comment about a litigant a litigant that came in you can't say anything because people will append your name and repeat it. And that's going to get you in trouble down the road. There's The next item on the list is a topic that uh, is referred to as robitis. Robitis is like a disease, like a substance abuse situation, drugs or alcohol. Except it relates to judges who, once they become appointed and take the bench, they start to exhibit different characteristics than what they did before they became a judge. For example, I knew a judge that would go to a Chamber of Commerce uh, dinner, annual meeting, show up without an appointment, I mean a reservation, walk up to the registration desk and say, I'm judge so-and-so. I should be on the VIP list and I'm a guest of the association and therefore I'm comped. And with that, just walk right into the function without pain. I've seen um, judges that would expect that they can go to events and uh, be treated differently. At a movie theater, a judge was reported as going to the head of the line for a sellout movie and said to the people at the ticket window, I'm judge so-and-so, my security rules require that I, as a public official, not stand in a line and therefore I'm just coming up to the front here because I need to get in. And that was a, um, a type of conduct that just can't be tolerated. Robitis is also an attitude thing in the court, not only uh, with litigants in the court and the way you conduct yourself that, hey, I'm the boss and whatever I say goes, but it's also with your staff. It's sort of like an attitude of superiority, that you're better than everybody else, that you can say and do things that normally you wouldn't have done 
in the private sector or in the line of work you uh, were in before you uh, got your judicial appointment. Roe bias has brought many judges down, and if it goes untreated, uh, unchecked, it can actually just be fatal as far as, uh, as the career is concerned in the judiciary. So you really got to focus for that. And also, when you are asked by somebody what you do, where do you work, there's a tendency to want to kind of be real proud and say, well, I'm a Maricopa County judge. And I've had JPs, I've been in their presence outside of the, uh, the court environment, and that's the way they've introduced themselves. And the response a couple of times is, you're a Maricopa County judge. How can you be a judge? You're not a lawyer. And you invite uh, questions being raised about your qualifications. The other thing is if you tell people that I, uh, I'm a judge for Maricopa County, you open up yourself instantly to questions like, well, do you know so-and-so judge? I had a case before him, and I'd like to ask you some questions about that. Or people pass your name on, and you get phone calls about um, custody issues, divorce, probate, things like that. And you are getting this unwanted exposure because you tell people that you're a judge. When people ask me, what I do for a living, I say I work for Maricopa County. If they ask me, well, what do you do for Maricopa County? I say, I work in the judicial system. If they ask me, well, what do you do in the judicial system? I say, I'm responsible for the operation of a court. And I do not want to tell people that I'm a judge. I gave up on the idea that I'm out trying to self-promote myself in order to get votes from the public. I know Superior Court judges who, who will never, ever really disclose in public what they do for a living because they do not want the visibility of people contacting them uh, looking for free legal advice and things like that. The uh, next major item under your personal life is very simple. Get off social media. Personally, I've never been on Facebook. I've never been on LinkedIn. I've never done a Twitter. Uh, or a tweet, but that's my own personal decision. I've learned from hearing thousands of uh, petitions for orders of protection and injunctions against harassment how bad the world of social media is. And it's not getting any better, it's really getting worse. And I don't want my name floating around out there in social media. I do not want to give somebody the ability to read information about me, to to like me, to do all these things that you can do with Facebook and things like that. It, it does not really buy you anything, in my opinion. It's just an invitation, an open door to trouble. So if you're really active on social media, you, you need to understand that you're providing a forum for people to be critical of you, and you may not like the things that get said about you. But if you're not on social media, then people just kind of ignore you and just move on. And finally, in your personal life, be careful using email. The forward key is your enemy. You do not want to be saying things that you don't want published in email, and especially using court email. Even if you use your personal email account on a court computer, I really question 
doing that. Use it from your uh, from your your telephone. Use your email from your telephone. Don't use county resources such as uh, the the email system uh, for anything that's not court related. We had a situation years ago where a, uh, a, a member of the Board of Supervisors really got hammered bad because they were using the county telephone system for personal long-distance phone calls. And you, you need to know that even though there isn't any such thing as a charge for long-distance anymore, there is a record if you make a, a long-distance phone call from your, your bench phone or your office phone and it's for personal purposes. You're opening yourself up to information that can be obtained through a public uh, information request and, and, and be used against you uh, down the road. So be careful about using the county resources, especially for email. Now in the area of bench survival, we have a recording system called FTR and you got to remember to always use it. It really is your friend. It has kept me out of a lot of uh, trouble with people making false complaints that I, to the commission that I fell asleep. Somebody said one time I was cleaning my gun on the bench. Uh, someone accused me of, uh, of being uh, racially biased. Uh, and the commission staff attorney, they, they can quickly investigate uh, any alleged complaint just by looking at the FTR recording and realize it's meritless. And a lot of times they don't even notify me that, the, that there was a complaint. They just resolve it right on the spot and that's the end of it. The FTR is also helpful for going back and remembering what exactly was said in a, in a trial, especially if it has to be continued to a later date. It's not always possible to remember everything. But when you do have the FTR system on, you've got to remember one important thing. It's, it's my favorite radio station, KYMS. Nobody knows or ever heard about that radio station because there really isn't one like that. But what those initials stand for is keep your mouth shut. I have a sign on the, my side of the bench that I can see and I'm looking at it all the time and it just says KYMS. I don't tell anecdotal stories. I don't ad-lib things. Um, if somebody walks into the courtroom as a party to, let's say, a, a civil case or a, a contested uh, protective order hearing and, and there's 14 people that they bring in with them, and I, I say, who, who are these uh, 14 people? Can you tell me? Well, they're my, my witnesses. And I'm not going to make some statement like, well, what is this, the trial of the century or something? You know, some offhanded comment. I never say those things because I remember it's being recorded. And I don't want that to be used against me uh, as being flippant uh, or making other types of statements, especially um, ex parte uh, discussions and things like that. When a person when a person leaves the courtroom and they leave the other opposing party by themselves in my courtroom, I tell that person, when the other party walks out that door, my ability to talk to you is over with because I remember KYMS. I encourage everybody when you're on the bench, make your decisions on the facts, the law, and nothing else. There's factual disputes that can solve cases or there's 
uh, a law that, that, that dictates the outcome of a case, such as uh, statute of limitations or something like that. Don't use emotion. Don't use bias. Don't use the fact that the person lives in your precinct and the other one doesn't. Make decisions on the facts. Here's my favorite next one. Don't become a witness. There may be a case before you, especially civil, where the factual dispute is over an area where you almost could be considered an expert witness. In my own world, uh, I'm very familiar with certain brands of uh, sports cars. I, I know a lot about them. And if I'm hearing a case on diminished value, and it happens to be the subject car is one of my sports cars that I know a lot about, I can't jump in there and say, oh, this appraisal, this is way off the charts. That car isn't worth this, it's worth X. I can't do that. Now, I can't suppress the fact that I possess this knowledge, but I have to make the decision based upon the facts that are presented in the court. And if I start siding with one side or the other, then I've basically made myself as a, as a witness in the case, and you can't do that. So be careful when you ask questions. You can ask questions for clarification of something said, but don't use that as to open up the door to pontificate about your expert knowledge in the area and impugn the fact that you think somebody else isn't being truthful. When you're uh, dealing with a complex case or a complex situation, and I've had some really, really challenging, for example, evidentiary hearings in DUI cases, if you don't know really what's happening, don't try to fake it. Don't try to fake or impress people that you really understand what's going on. If you're doing, a, a, let's say, a, a voir dire in a jury trial or something and somebody uh, throws up a Batson challenge and you don't know what a Batson challenge is, don't try to fake it like you do because you're going to lose a lot of credibility with a lot of people. I remember I went off to a uh, one-week course in the rules of evidence and then I came back for a week and then I went off a second week for advanced rules of evidence and one of the attorneys uh, when I came back said, oh, I understand judge you are you were gone. They said you're going to evidentiary uh, evidence school and I said, uh, yeah, I said, it was really interesting. They say, did you learn a lot? I said, oh, yeah. So later in the bench trial, the, uh, the attorney uh, raises the objection. And I said, what's the basis of your objection, counselor? He said, well, it violates rules of evidence 1023. And I looked at the attorney. I said, 1023? I said, there is no 1023. And he laughed and he smiled and he says, I was just testing you. Okay, so... You want to uh, make sure that uh, you don't fake stuff. Take a short recess and call somebody if you're just stumped, if you're just up against a brick wall. Uh, I always had phone numbers that I could call people very quickly. And over the years, uh, I've even called uh, Charles Arlando several times and said, Charles, I, I want to bounce something off of you and get your opinion. How do you see this? I don't, though, ask that the person makes the decision for me. I'm just asking for their input, how they see it. From a standpoint of being a judicial officer, especially when you're in the courtroom, nobody is your friend. 
people will try to come across very friendly because they want to motivate you to make decisions most favorable to them. But at the end of the day, nobody is your friend. The attorneys are in there doing their job. They're going to get paid win, lose, or draw. And you're not going to be able to make friends uh, with litigants. You're not going to be able to get them to uh, like a disfavorable ruling from you or like you. You just have to look at it as pure business and forget any concept of uh, friendship. But people will try to come across uh, accommodating to you and just, just understand that at the end of the day, they're not your friend. In terms of bench survival, I always took advantage of additional education. Uh, I won't say I was an education course junkie, but when something came up that really could enhance or uh, enforce my understanding of a topic, I took advantage of that opportunity for that education. With regard... Hello? ...list of bench survival suggestions is don't take anything personal. Notices, appeals, or complaints do not react negatively to those situations. They're just part of the job and, and they'll happen on a uh, regular basis all throughout your term as a judicial officer. So do not take it personal and also a lot of times uh, if somebody does file a complaint against you or, or an appeal, it's not really a basis to recuse yourself from the the case necessarily just on the basis of that, but don't take stuff uh, uh, too, too thin-skinned, I guess is the message. Understand also, and this was hard for me, you operate in an atmosphere of untruths. Very surprising to me was the number of times someone would take the oath to tell the truth, and after they're asked to state their name, that's the last time you really heard anything that seemed to be truthful. Understand that people will only tell you that part of a story or present only those portions of the facts which are most persuasive to their side of the argument. They're not there to make the case for the other party. They're there to convince you any way that they can. And unfortunately, because we don't have any ability to challenge someone who uh, does not tell the truth, uh, we're going to deal in an atmosphere of, of untruths and you just have to learn to be on guard for it and obviously you can factor that into your decision making in like civil cases and things like that but be aware of it don't take everything as gospel next is don't give advice to anyone you're not the precinct godfather you're not the 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 uh, uh, neighborhood consigliore you cannot lecture people, you cannot give them advice, you cannot give them suggestions on how to handle situations. Many times you're asked, well, what should I do? How do I collect on this judgment? Uh, how do I get my money? And you just have to say, go out to uh, the, the information desk, uh, ask at my uh, uh, window, my court uses window number one and window number two in our building. I say go to window number one and ask that question. I cannot get into a situation of giving advice to anyone. Uh, again, you cannot serve as an attorney for someone. You do not want to get trapped into the world of uh, unauthorized practice of law. 
Finally, in the area of bench survival, you have to understand the psyche of people that are in your court. Um, what I mean by this is they don't comprehend very well what is being said by you and by other people. So therefore, you have to avoid compound sentences. Those confuse people. Or compound statements or statements with embedded qualifiers, you know, the dreaded but also or if or perhaps or sometimes or maybe. You have to talk in very precise terms and try to communicate with people at the seventh grade level. Uh, this may sound a little ludicrous, but that is a level at which most people understand what is being said to them or what is written. And you should get a clue when you look at, at handwritten pleadings from pro pers. And you look at the grammar and you look at the way they articulate a thought and you kind of get a sense that you should be communicating back to them at about the same level. You can't pontificate as a judicial officer, all of this legalese stuff. Net it down to words that people can comprehend and understand. Regarding policies, when you're on the bench, I want you to think seriously of things like don't ever backdate your signature. I will not ever sign a document and not use today's date. There could be a rare exception, but I don't like to have any documents with my signature backdated. It's just not uh, reflective of being authentic as far as documenting when you do things. Also, when I go out and ask for help with another judge on an issue, I do not ask them to make the decision for me. As I said uh, earlier, I tell people I've already made my mind up, but I have questions about maybe some facts or a point of law, and I just want you to clarify it for me. And then uh, I'll let them know that the decision that I made, a lot of times I just write it down on a little three by five file card and I, I, I put it face down on the desk or something. I say, my decision is already on this card. I'll, I'll disclose it to you when we're done talking about this thing and I flip it over. And that gives them the feeling that they're not controlling my decisions, that, that my decisions are made by me, not by them. Here's something very, very critical. Uh, this point has been the downfall of a lot of judicial officers. Don't turn your staff against you, whether it's an individual or a team. We recently had a situation where an outsider was in our administrative area and told a joke that one employee felt was offensive. That employee just became a drum beater for weeks uh, talking to other staff members about how horrible it was that management allowed this person to tell this joke. And it, it, it made it into almost a, an HR issue 
where we felt we were going to get a lot of unwanted negative visibility over this thing. We were able to tamp it down finally, and it, but it didn't resolve itself until two things happened. One, the person to whom the joke was told to who laughed about it, that person left our staff and went over to another court, and the person who was offended still wouldn't give up uh, the drum beating with the other employees, and that person finally uh, left our court system and went off into another department within the county. And that was the only way that thing got resolved. But your staff, their job is to protect you and to, to watch your back. And if they don't like you, if they don't admire you, if they're not willing to follow you, then you're going to have a problem because they can really make life uh, miserable. Coupled with that is don't ask your staff to do personal things for you. We had a justice of the peace that had a bad case of robitis to the point where that judge was asking uh, the constable to drive them to and from various locations on nights and weekends using the county car. That was uh, one of the most obvious things, but they were also asking the staff to do personal errands for the judge. The clerks do not take uh, your, your laundry in for you. They do not run down to the drugstore and pick up a prescription because you don't have time to get off the bench. They do not do personal things for you and never, never uh, ask them to do that. Here's a big one. Stay out of HR issues, human resource issues. Use your manager for that. If you want to stir up a hornet's nest, walk by a staff member's desk and tell them that they have to remove a picture of their daughter that is sitting on their desk because you believe that the dress that the daughter is wearing is a little too suggestive. This just can blow out a total proportion. Use your manager. You can say to your manager, do you have a concern with this picture? But you cannot be the person who initiates the issue. You do not want to talk about any HR issues directly with your staff. Go through your manager. They receive a tremendous amount of education and training and mentoring and assistance from county HR and from justice court HR to make sure that the court stays out of trouble and that they do things procedurally correct. And if you inject yourself into this stuff, if you start to initiate things like objecting to a picture or telling a person you have to take down a little, a little plastic green tree because you think it's a, a Christmas tree and uh, they say, no, it's not a Christmas tree. You say, well, the Christmas tree to me, take it off your desk. Things like that, you're asking for trouble and it can morph up almost into uh, uh, violating federal laws if you're not careful. Next is support your manager. Your manager is uh, very quietly watching out for you. The manager protects the court just as you're to protect the court, but sometimes the manager has to protect the judge. I, I remember years ago, uh, knew uh, I, I was not assessing uh, default fees and time payment fees and one day my manager came to me and, and said you know you're you're waiving uh, uh, the DFs and I said w w what's a DF 
And the manager said, well, that's a default fee. And I said, well, what's a default fee? And they explained it to me. And they said, don't, don't worry about it. We've, you know, we've got them here for you to correct because we don't want you to get in trouble and we don't want to uh, have a ding against us in, in an audit. So, Judge, we're watching out for you, but we just kind of couldn't figure out why you were doing it. Now we understand it's because you didn't, you didn't know about it. So support your manager because your manager supports you. Don't sponsor people right now if you're relatively new to be a pro tem or a hearing officer. You're taking on a liability. Uh, you're supposed to train a pro tem, guarantee them a certain number of hours, monitor their performance, sign off that they're bench certified. And if you're not fully trained, uh, don't think that you can train somebody else to, uh, to be fully functional on the bench. Uh, only after you're really seasoned and you have a definite need for pro tems or hearing officers, you know, should you even ever think about sponsoring somebody. Set standards for what you allow is another area uh, that is very helpful in terms of policies. I have standards for a lot of things. Standards for uh, default judgments on attorney's fees. I have standards for uh, how many days I will extend uh, a motion to request additional time to serve. For example, we allow initially 90 days, and if they ask for additional time to serve, I'll give them another 90 days. After that, no more, period, end of discussion. Uh, defensive driving school, if you give 30 days to, to attend defensive driving school, half the people blow it off. They forget about it, they get busy, had to take a vacation, had to work, didn't have the money. And they come back and they, they ask for an extension. I give everybody 60 days and I tell them very clearly, don't come back, there's no extensions, it's very simple. And I cut down the amount of work that our court has to do in creating what I call legacy files, cases that just never seem to go away, never get resolved. Every time we touch a file, it's costing money. I negotiate settlements on delinquent fines as a policy. I know from experience that my court is generally in competition uh, with other courts or other people that the defendant owes money to. And if I can get anything that's reasonable and justifiable to resolve the case, I'm going to do it. So a lot of times I will ask people, I will say, do you have living relatives in town? Do you have very close friends that might be able to make you a temporary loan? Do you have an employer that can advance some money to you? Because I've got an idea. I can take this thousand dollars that you've owed for the last three years and I can uh, possibly uh, proportion some of it to uh, community service. I can possibly waive some of the fees and I can reduce some of the fines, but you're going to have to pay something. I have a number in mind, but here's the key. Can you have this resolved in 48 hours if I tell you what it will take so that you never have to come back here again? And a lot of times people go, you mean I can get this whole thing settled and never have to come back here again? I go, that's what I'm saying. I'm going to tell you how much it is, but you've got to first tell me that you have access to financial resources to resolve it. And sometimes it'll be, you know, $200 to solve a $1,000 uh, fine that's been hanging around for eight years. And they're happy. We get the money because I know for a fact that if we're in competition with two or three other courts or other collection agencies or the landlord or the car payments or the insurance, we may never see our money.
Next in policies is just commit that you will not sign any document without knowing what it is. I remember a, a, a justice of the peace that signed a document from the state of Utah authorizing a person to change their name and didn't even look at what they were doing and just blindly signed it. You cannot sign any document without knowing what it is because there can be really some severe consequences as to how that document is used. For example, a, 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 a writ of attachment or something like that. If you don't know the implications of the document, don't sign it. Whenever you reduce requests for attorney's fees, I want you though to document the basis for the reduction. And that means you have to go through the affidavit, fondly known as a China doll, to uh, document areas where you have objections and concerns that something is not reasonable. And itemize everything and then fill out the appropriate uh, form in the uh, on-base system to document why you reduce the attorney's fees. If you do that, chances of uh, being taken up on appeal and being uh, overturned are, are relatively reduced. Be on time for docket items. If something is going to be scheduled for 9.30 in your court, be in your courtroom at 9.30. Don't make people wait for you. We've had judges that felt that, uh, that there was uh, uh, the, the docket time and then there was the judge time. And the judge would just show up on the bench when the judge was ready. Know who the participants are in all cases. I've accidentally assumed that someone was an attorney. I've had plaintiffs sit at the defendant's desk and I've crisscrossed people. I've made all kinds of uh, goofy mistakes in assuming that I knew who the participants were. So when I've got people in the courtroom, I find out who everybody is. I thought one time an interpreter was a witness. So you've got to make sure that you know who the players are in your courtroom. We have a lot of judges that are afraid to do jury trials. As a policy, I learned real fast in the very beginning how to do those trials. And it's really enjoyable when you realize that you don't have to make the decision, the jury does. And some people don't want to do jury trials because they're embarrassed that they might stumble and make mistakes. So you do a few with a mentor judge and then you just carbon copy everything they do and use the scripts that we have. Sometimes we have people come before us that are really, really upset. I've had people kick my bench and use foul language. I keep my cool. And the way I respond to them is I simply make the following statement. Do you always act like this or are you just having a particular bad day? And generally that stops them dead in their tracks. They look up at you and they say, I'm sorry. And I say, okay, let's move on. A policy I have is I move files. I don't let stuff build up. Uh, the staff is constantly forwarding me stuff. I turn it around instantly. And one of the things I empty every day is the, is the on-base system. Whatever's in the queue gets done so that staff's not waiting on things. I don't let it build up to 100 cases and, and then uh, uh, sit down and grind out one day to do them. I volunteer to make oral findings of facts, conclusions of laws after trial, uh, in especially civil cases, because I realize that what I'm doing is, is making a record for a, a potential review by an appellate judge as to how I made my decision. 
and why I acted the way I did, instead of keeping everybody in suspense. And it also helps the participants to understand why they won or lost their case. In dual pro per cases, I give everybody one last chance to speak. I say, is there something now that's come to your mind that you wish you would have said, but you think you don't have the chance to say it anymore? Now is the chance to do it before we go into closing arguments. That removes any possibility that someone can say in a complaint, he didn't let me present my case. I announce time limits at the beginning of a hearing or trial. Uh, I've had people come in and uh, they thought they had all day for a, a civil bench trial. And I tell them in the very beginning, no, we've got an hour and a half or two hours set. And sometimes you just have to get people to focus on what the real factual dispute is and not go down rabbit holes. With, uh, with stuff that is redundant, repetitive, or irrelevant. And that's why I like to use as my big friend one of the rules of evidence is rules 402 and 403, which basically give you as the judge the opportunity to say, this is redundant, this is repetitive, this is not relevant anymore. We don't need to hear all this testimony. We've been through it before. Also, rule 404, character witnesses. I ask people in advance, you just brought 14 folks in, they're going to be witnesses, what are they going to testify to? Well, Judge, they're going to testify to my character. Well, you know, we don't really think that uh, that's going to be necessary in this case. Um, so understand when character witness testimony can be used and, and when it shouldn't be used. Understand the real factual dispute with civil cases. The attorneys will send you off in the wrong direction. They're like illusionists sometimes, you know, going to see a magic show, a sleight of hand. The thing is, they want to cover stuff that's a sideshow, and that's not what the real factual dispute is. When I walk out on the bench on a civil case, I understand it's diminished value, or it's money owed in a credit card case. And I know the facts that I have to have presented to me to make a decision. And if people say, well, you know, uh, I've, I've really, I, I want to present all this medical information for my doctor. I've been really sick or this or that. I'm sorry, but we, we, we just can't go in that direction. I stick to the facts. And finally, take notes during a trial um, of the important information. Even though you got the FTR going, that's great but you don't want to have to sit there and listen for a half hour to just hear one statement. So I record important notes, things that people say, the testimony of witnesses, numbers and amounts and how people justified their claims and things like that. And I can make reference to that. And some people say, well, I never said that. And I go, well, I've got right here in my notes that you did. And I can play back the recording if you wish, or you can just take me at my word. I wrote it down here on this pad. You did say that. And that has helped me immensely, and it, uh, it establishes credibility that I, as the judicial officer, am paying close attention to what's going on in the case. So these notes uh, are, are, that I've shared with you are suggestions, both your personal life, surviving on the bench, and establishing policies to guide you as a judicial officer for the years that you're on the bench, and I hope that uh, you find them beneficial. And we're joined in this special podcast by Sarah Lemelman, who uh, was a, an extern from the Sandra Day O'Connor Law School for the Justice Courts. 
and she is on her way. She's just taken the New York State Bar. She is on her way to New York City to become a public defender, and she has a question for Judge Reagan. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, and I just wanted to know, as a justice of the peace, what is the most difficult aspect of the job? Most difficult aspect of the job I found out over the years is staying abreast of everything that changes. For example, uh, you have opinions from courts that, that change the interpretation of laws, the application of laws. You have legislatures that are enacting new laws. You have uh, new fees, uh, assessments, and changes in fine structure and keeping documentation as to, well, what was the fine eight years ago when this offense was originally committed because the defendant has finally, um, let's say, been brought to court, maybe responding to an act of warrant or something like that, they finally surfaced. Uh, the, the change is, is constant, and I found that being on the bench for 15 years, you develop an institutional knowledge that you can fall back on, which is very easy to then sort things out by saying, oh, back then, this is the way we had to handle that, and that's the way we'll handle it today. On the other hand, adapting to the new policies, the new rules, the new regulations, uh, give you one would be um, fine abatement, uh, people pleading financial hardship. We, we never went through that before. Uh, maybe it was something that was done independently in each court, depending upon the viewpoints of the judge, the specific judge, as to um, the applicability of fines and fees and things like that. You could take a liberal approach or a conservative approach or whatever, uh, you know, hard approach, easy approach. But today it's more codified, you know, we actually have written documentation that says, you know, thou shalt, you know, make an inquiry and based upon the responses, thou shalt then do the following. And so you, you have to be willing to do those things, even if you don't personally sometimes agree with them. There are fines for civil traffic violations I do not agree with, but I, I don't tell people that. I, I just apply it because the law says that's what I got to do. Well, and to that point, toward the end, you talked about how you would compromise when people owed money. And so, in effect, that is what fair justice, there the fine abatement that you just referred to. So you were doing a form of fair justice years before it was actually implemented. Right. There wasn't any uh, written documentation, any standards of you know, uh, implementation of the federal poverty guidelines and charts to use. Um, you just knew that you had to take away the shovel from this person so they could quit digging the hole deeper for themselves. And in essence, it was really court protection. I wanted them out of my court because their files just became circular. Just, you know, I had a case yesterday. It, it was the 23rd time that I had seen the defendant on a bad check charge where there was a plea agreement years ago. 23rd time. And we've issued warrants and we ordered to show causes and new payment plans. And every time the person comes in and they provide a new story as to why they can't be responsive to their commitments. And the, the hard part is that because we don't have debtor prison, you know, we can't send people to jail 
for failure to make restitution. So therefore, it's just catch and release, catch and release. And it's very aggravating. And we think yesterday we just took a stance that will bring it to a successful completion where the victim will get their restitution and we will get them to cease taking up valuable court time in the future. What were some of the most memorable arguments that you've had made to you? I think the best ones came out of evidentiary hearings in, uh, in DUI cases. And the wildest one was an off-duty police officer was following a vehicle that was weaving and swerving and used his personal portable radio to phone or call into MCSO but they couldn't get somebody out in time and the person turned on to a side street and eventually drove up their driveway, r remotely opened up their garage door and drove into the garage. The off-duty police officer parked his car at the base of the, uh, the driveway, ran up the driveway and ran into the garage and yelled, freeze, and told the defendant to turn around. The idea was to be able to ID the defendant because he could only see the defendant from the back. He couldn't see the defendant's face and the defendant was ready to go into the house. And the defendant refused to turn around and went in the house. And while he was in there, he knocked off a couple beers on top of it. But when MCSO finally showed up, there was uh, a DUI investigation and and ultimately they charged the defendant with impaired driving. At the evidentiary hearing, the defense counsel argued that it was a, a warrantless search. You, you, you had no right to run into the person's residence. And the, the battle came down to, did the police officer run into the garage or not? The police officer said, well, he, he didn't run into the garage. The defendant said, oh, yes, he did, because you tripped the garage door. You stopped it from coming down. And the only way it would stop from coming down and go back up is if you broke that safety beam. And the police officer was kind of thinking for a minute, you know. And what really made it horrible was the fact that the officer was off-duty in plain clothes and had drawn a gun and was pointing it in darkness at the uh, defendant who was running inside his house before he even knew that it was a police officer. I, I can tell you that uh, the decision of that evidentiary hearing was in support of the motion to suppress <laughs> and uh, that basically ended the DUI case. Uh, so I like seeing the system work. Was the defendant impaired? Probably, okay, based upon driving characteristics and subsequent, you know, tests, blood tests and stuff like that. Yeah, impaired. But did the officer have the right to do what he did running into the garage? The argument was that the garage door is just nothing but a huge front door to a house. You have no business going in there any more than you do running through the front door. Uh, and I enjoyed the spirited debate because it allowed me to see the law working independent of, you know, the guilt or not guilt of the party. It, it's just, it was just black and white. You can't do that. Therefore, it's over with. And anything else that, you know, 
happened thereafter, you know, it's, you know, the, the poison fruit type thing. So uh, I, I enjoy seeing the system work, e even though if it lets somebody go, I take the theory that maybe they've learned their lesson and will not ever uh, use bad judgment again. But the, um, you know, the, the most outstanding situation that ever happened to me on the bench, ever, 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 was we were doing pre-trial conferences and a gentleman came in by himself and he submitted a plea agreement reducing a DUI charge down to reckless driving. And I had a pretty packed courtroom and I said to the man, you know, I'm sure when you came to the courthouse today, you were really concerned about facing, you know, a DUI charge and, 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 and you're going to walk out of here with a reckless driving charge. I said, there's, there's a big difference, you know, between the two charges. And I said, I'll never know the circumstances of what happened, but I hope you realize that you only get one bite of the apple in life on stuff like this. I haven't had one of these plea downs for over six months. So, you know, you're it and probably be another six months before this ever happens again. So I like to see the law working, but you, you really need to reflect on what brought this upon you and make sure you don't put yourself in harm's way in the future. And he says to me, Judge, I swear on my mother's grave, on my family Bible, I will never drink alcohol and drive again. And I said, say that again. Turn around and say it to everybody. And so he said, on my mother's grave, on my family Bible, I'll never drink alcohol and drive again. I said, I believe you. Six weeks later, he's in my court being arraigned on an extreme DUI charge. And I'm looking down at him, and I'm saying, yeah, you're the family Bible mother's grave guy. I look at the date of the violation. What happened? And he started to tear up, and he says, Judge... I was so excited beating that DUI charge that when I left your courtroom, I went out and celebrated. <laughs> he got the DUI charge three hours after he had just entered a plea to reckless driving. And he ended the story on, you know, family Bible, mother's grave thing. But the funniest part of it was, he says, but I have a friend that told me about a thing called double jeopardy, that you can't be charged twice for the same crime. And I said, well, this is a different interpretation. And I explained it to him. I said, it doesn't apply here. And he just completely went to pieces. And I, you know, I just proceeded along. And I, I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, sometimes you just can't save people from themselves. And that was the most memorable. What will you miss the most about being a judge? I think uh, it would be the... Uh, the exposure to people, that they keep my compass true and direct. I once uh, imagined years ago in the beginning, I said, you know, Michael, the only difference between me and those defendants in front of me, like in criminal cases, was when I did what they did, I didn't get caught. And it's a very sobering thing, for example, I no longer drink alcohol as a result of what I have seen from not only the DUI cases, but the uh, petitions for orders of protection. 
a lot of this is grounded in substance abuse. People just aren't themselves and are doing very harmful things to other people. And it makes you think that, you know, you're, you're not any different than they are. My wife says to me years ago, uh, when you come home, you just got to remember you're not wearing that robe. You know, you're my husband, you're my partner, you're not my boss, you're not the judge in this house. And so when I take off the robe, I'm just a normal citizen and I have to act accordingly and I can't do anything to disrespect my judicial position. That's what the canons tell me. And as a result, I'm very, very careful because I don't want to be in their shoes. So it's very educational and therapeutic for me. Now, this whole conversation, you've not talked about weddings. How many weddings have you done? I have no idea. Thousand? Um, a judge once told me, kind of in a joking fashion, that they had done enough weddings in their, in, in their courthouse that there was no need for them to ever campaign for re-election because they had married everybody. Uh, I don't know, we, we have a, a rotation system here and uh, you know, you, it might be four a week, five a week, something like that. We're not real high volume like other courts are. Well, the one question I have about weddings then, how many weddings were there where you nearly stopped the wedding and said, are you sure you want to get married? Yes, I had, I had one very notable one. And it, it, and I turned out my instinct was correct. A very um, so, uh, old, older gentleman, 50 years of age, was marrying a Russian 21-year-old girl. And she wouldn't look at him at all. And I couldn't figure out why he was marrying her. So I basically, I started asking questions like, how did you meet? Oh, I met her on a business trip to Russia. What do you do? Oh, I own a very large computer um, uh, microprocessing micro company in Tempe. He mentioned the name of it, and I knew it was big. I'm not going to say the name of the company, but it was big. It was it was like over the uh, over the counter stock traded. I mean, big rocking operation, employed thousands of people, and and he was the owner of it. So he was rich, and and she's not looking at him. She's totally ignoring him. And then I almost said to him, are you sure you want to do this? Because he had just met her three weeks ago and he brought her back to the United States. And on the following Monday, the Scottsdale police came to my court and they said, Judge Reagan, did you marry so-and-so? And I go, yeah, I haven't even turned in the certificate yet to the clerk of the court. And I said, why? And they said, well, were you aware of, you know, what was going on? And I said, no. What happened? It was a setup. It was, let's just call it the Russian business mafia. And they arranged for her to gain all of his trust. And they got married and they were spending their honeymoon over at the Phoenician. 
and she said upon arrival, you excuse me, I'm going to go downstairs to the gift shop and get a few things. And the next minute, the police are knocking at his door, and they arrested him for domestic violence, assaulting his wife. And she had bruises and marks on her, uh, which were administered by her Russian boyfriend who accompanied her. And they arrested him and, and carted him off. She and the boyfriend promptly went over to the house, because she's now the wife, and they emptied out the house. They stole the art collection. They helped themselves to stealing some of the rarest wines around. And um, then he had an attorney that was trying to get a, an emergency order, but he couldn't get it until till Monday. And the attorney kept telling him, okay, just leave it alone. We can't go to court until Monday. Just stay away. Don't talk to her. You know, this order was served on him, uh, order of protection. Don't go on the property. Don't do anything. And she called him up on his cell phone and said, we're in New York. I'm with my boyfriend. I'm returning to Russia. I just wanted to let you know that your two dogs are in that house. They have no water and no food. And I don't give a damn whether they starve to death or what. So if you want to go in there and feed them, it's up to you. They were waiting down the street. So when he pulled up and went into the house, they called the police and he got, he got arrested again for violating the order of protection. And then they uh, moved in and, and finished transferring money from his personal bank account to uh, overseas accounts. And it was then and only then that they left. And he took a bruising on that. And they asked me if I was suspicious, and I said, yes, I was very suspicious. It's the only time I'd married anybody that I just knew it wasn't going to work out. Um, as I'm about to be uh, licensed to be an attorney, do you have advice for just brand new attorneys like myself? Uh, sure. Uh, number one, don't be intimidated because you're new, especially going up in front of a, a judge that... Uh, has been around a long time. In fact, it's beneficial that they know that you're new because then they can lower their expectations and deal with you and communicate accordingly and uh, not, you know, tend to form a, you know, a negative opinion like, oh my gosh, you know, she, I thought she would have known more, you know, that type of stuff. So uh, don't, don't be shy about that. But also don't let, you know, people roll over you either. So, you know, when in doubt, do the same thing I said to judges, you know, go check with somebody, you know, uh, get, get somebody's feedback, someone's uh, uh, input. And uh, that would be the best piece of advice is make sure they're aware you're new. You know? All right, and uh, a final question. As you know, we have had several legislators who retire as legislators and then run and become justice of the peace. Well, you're retiring as Justice of the Peace. I know you're not planning to run for the legislature, but let's just assume you do run for the legislature and you win. What would you change? One of the things I would change, I'd, I'd like to see the whole Title 28 rewritten, especially uh, in the area of, uh, of civil fines, uh, because I have seen how a one civil fine can morph into... Uh, a suspension of a driver's license, an impounding of a car, inability to 
to then get the car out because why would you want to uh, keep insurance on a car that's being impounded and because you don't have a car you can't work you lose your job then you lose your apartment because you can't pay the rent and all started with a, with a silly traffic ticket I think that the courts are inundated with these types of situations with traffic tickets and everything is digital today I think that you ought to be able to like swipe your driver's license through a terminal with a police officer and um, or you know give them a credit card or something take care of it on the spot low fees high volume okay just settle it right on the spot if you're willing to plead responsible boom it's you know it's 50 bucks for speeding unless it's just outrageous uh, and stop also this insanity of reporting stuff to insurance you know allowing insurance companies to have the stuff on your record that's the biggest fear that people have simply uh, say that, that, that these civil violations are, are, are not going to be uh, recorded and reported to, to, to uh, commercial, commercial agencies. We're going to arrive at the point anyway where things like insurance are controlled by your driving habits and it'll be, you know, electronically you'll be monitored in your car that's coming. And, and therefore, really all this reporting and defensive driving school and, and things like that, I think, is just a waste of uh, the court's resources. Take all that stuff out of the court, free up the court to do other more important things. Don't be putting all this civil stuff in here. Don't use traffic as a way to raise money for the general fund. $910 for driving without insurance. My gosh, that's outrageous. I mean, that, 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 that fine crushes people. It just destroys their lives. Most people are a paycheck away from financial disaster. That's why we have title loan companies. And at that, uh, thank you, Judge Reagan, uh, and uh, best of luck to you uh, and to Sarah. Uh, congratulations, and uh, have a terrific career. And you're always welcome back to uh, welcome to come back to the state of Arizona. Yeah. Okay, thank you.